Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Haim Simon. He's a professor of law at Villanova University. He's a scholar of Jewish law, insurance law, and private law. His scholarship has appeared in numerous journals. And he's got a new book coming out this year called Halakha, The Rabbinic Idea of Law, which will be published by Princeton University Press in 2018. He also wrote a fascinating article in The Atlantic about why The Last Jedi is for the spiritual but not religious crowd and how it reflects those tendencies in our culture. We had a fascinating conversation about that and a host of other things. I hope you enjoy the conversation half as much as I did. I give you Haim Simon. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So the, the reason we're sitting here also in this beautiful conference room at Villanova Law School, and you are a scholar in the field of law and religion. But before we get into your body of work in that field, I want to talk to you about Star Wars because <laughs> I didn't know you at all. And you wrote this great piece called Why the Last Jedi is More Spiritual Than Religious in The Atlantic. And that's where I reached out to you. Uh, and you, in it, you, you talk about just the, the, how we see kind of the contemporary sensibilities around tradition, religion, spirituality reflected in the film. And you see in the film, right, a break. I mean, there, there's some differences in the film from, from previous approaches to the force and tradition, things like that. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I'm I'm not a Star Wars guy, and the truth is, when when I wrote this, my brother and a couple of friends who knew me forever so like, "Since when are you such a Star Wars guy?" Um, but it's true that you know I've, I'd seen the movies, um, and right, what I noticed was just how different the perspective on training and initiation into the Force was um, in this new movie than not only the old ones, but even the one that was just a few years ago. The um, is, the, is, it, is that the uh, the Force Awakens? The Force Awakens, Force Awakens right? Um, where there, it's very much like you know, is Ray a Skywalker, and then this like the idea of the you know the lightsaber that was Vader's, and then Luke's as being some like almost holy object that then is returned founder in this very um, to its owner. I'm sorry, in this very momentous kind of last scene of that movie. And the whole question of, oh, Ray is so untrained. Who's going to train her? Who's, you know, will she go to Luke? Will he train? And that was to me quite consistent with the, with what I'll, you know, the, the, the feeling and the gestalt of, of the older movies. And then By the way, that movie, the end of that, it's like my wife is from Kansas. She loves the Mummers more than anybody I've ever seen love the Mummers. And she loves where they go, the big reveal, the big reveal. At The Force Awakens, that Luke at the end, that was the big reveal. We, big you wait the whole movie right. for, yeah, for the big that's right. reveal. And, and, and that's why it's so consistent with this kind of, you know, he's there on this mountaintop in this remote place. And the, the myth and the mythos of the Jedi and the Force is very strong in that movie, as it is in, in almost all the other ones. And then um, the way it gets portrayed in this movie uh, was was quite different, and the 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 other thing that was so striking to me, and maybe this has to do with you know my my Jewish background, is is the books, you know, because Judaism is a culture that is you know has been held together by books and by texts, and um, the 
disregard of these texts. And you finally see them. You know, they're talked about vaguely in the other movies, but you never see them. But you do see Yoda talk about the ways of the Force. And, you know, in, in the older trilogy, you know, I guess it would be the first, the prequel trilogy, you know, we see like the academies and the schools. And there's this like long initiation process uh, that, that kind of pervades this. And, and it's like all embodied, you know, Luke being the last guy. So these books are very central to this identity. <coughs> and then to see them, you know, I, we we think they're burned down, right? And and Luke thinks he's burning them. Now, you know, maybe Yoda knows they're not. And and then later on we find out they're My not. My favorite line is there's page turners, they were not. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And 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 that's the other thing is that it, it's not enough to have Luke do this, but they need to bring Yoda back literally from the dead. And like I wrote in the piece, you know, more than anybody, Yoda represents the kind of old ways of the Jedi. I mean, that's that's the purpose almost of that character. You know, in Return of the Jedi, uh, in uh, Empire Strikes Back and then going forward. And to have him show up and do that, I think, was just very striking. So it was the way they treated the books, the way they treated the Force, the fact that this was much more Ray was supposed to, like, look within herself and, um, like, feel it out it w- rather than this long training. Because, you know, Yoda's in, in Empire Strikes Back, it's all about patience and kind of, a very kind of somber, slow initiation. You can't kind of run too fast. And and the ethos of this movie was was to me quite different. Yeah, and and you get the sense that you say in the piece that in, in the old sense, in, in the old tradition, there was this. In the, in the old films, there was this sense that while the Jedi couldn't control the Force, they at least had some kind of access to a tradition, a sort of practice that, that that taught you how to tap into it. But here, Ray is just. There's like it's there's almost like a, it's almost the celebration of the immediacy of religious experience. Right? That's right. It's not mediated by traditions, or in fact, if anything, they'll hold you back. Traditions will get in the way that they'll substitute themselves for the thing and, and themselves. That, and that Luke says it. So that's a typical dynamic for the student to say, right? And then the the old master to say, no, you need the tradition, right? But here it's inverted. Or if anything, Ray is kind of like teach me in the way, and and you have now the, the authority figure, the the right the the you know, the person who represents and emblemizes uh, the Jedi tradition, which is Luke, kind of say the opposite. So it's a, it's, it's a very kind of reductivist um, sort, of, sort of view on it. And yeah, I thought that was quite, quite different. And that right where he says that, well, anyone, you don't need to be a Jedi to be a, to be, uh, you know, to access the Force. And not only that, you could say, okay, maybe there's all their ways, but like the Jedi way itself doesn't. Uh, really get you anywhere to me was just a really different like that seemed very different from what was going on all these other Star Wars movies there was a lot online about people not liking certain things but I thought that this was a facet that touched on some of the stuff that was being discussed but but not quite but but, but a different angle I thought to me a more kind of compelling angle to try to get at what was kind of what people were feeling about this movie and then that last scene to me was most telling where you see this young boy, right? Just he, now he needs a broom and it's kind of subtle. And the truth is I went back and forth with friends of whether it was a force grab or not. Seems to be that it is that, you know, Oh, now I need a broom. Boom. I could just do it. Um, yeah, which we didn't <clears throat> see with, well, we don't see any of Luke's childhood, but we don't really see anything of that magnitude. That's right. With Anakin Skywalker. I mean, maybe you could say some aptitude with the, with, the, aptitude. with the, with the racing. That's right. But not anything like that. That's right. But even there, oh, he has aptitude. We must train him. Right, right, right. That's the whole ethos. Yeah. Right? And that goes south. But, um, but, <laughs> but, 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 but right. It's not like, oh, he has aptitude. Go. 
right? It's like he has aptitude. It's almost like, you know, you got accepted to college, now let's teach you, as opposed to, you know, that being the, the aptitude being the end goal. So yeah, in that sense, I thought, well, this is really reflective of some 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 debates and changes that we're seeing within our society broadly. And it's not surprising that the popular culture will wittingly or unwittingly kind of reflect some of these uh, substructural sort of questions that we have about how we engage religion, how we engage spirituality, um, and whatnot. You, you also mentioned some of the piece that, where, where Kylo Ren, he after he kills Snoke, how different that is than the Darth Vader killing the Emperor. That, that Then he kind of reveals to Ren... The, the, it, there's, there's this kind of nihilism. Like you're, you're like, your parents are nothing. They were, I saw it. They were, they sold you for some, some cheap liquor, and that doesn't mean anything. Now we make our own meaning. We can rule the universe. We can, you know, we have this deep connection, and that's what life's. I mean, you, there's this sort of uh, this sense of like the, the if in the, the pocket or the the sort of nihilism that floats around a lot of our culture. Or, you know, that maybe is, or at least the fear of it because of, hey, or if all our traditions go, well, what does anything mean anymore? And you see it embodied in that scene. Like, we can make it all up ourselves. That's right. So, like, Vader knows that there's two options, right? I, mean, I think that looking at the dark side is, is interesting, of course, because, you know, you almost expect the, right, the light side to get it right. But, but like, that's why I kind of went back and like Vader's quite dismissive of the military might of the empire. You know, he uses it and, but like, you know, and he's quite dismissive of it because he thinks the real thing is the force. Right. And therefore he sees it as a kind of like, you know, almost like a, a you know, a modern machine, but like, that's not where it is. And what the movies underscore, and the reason I think they're successful, and, and this is another fact, you know, that people I don't think talk a lot about Star Wars, that there's this tension between, you know, the, you know, what we might call like a, you know, the space age military industrial complex and, you know, the comically large spaceships, of course, picked up by space balls, right? Um, <laughs> and, you know, there are these massive things and the Death Stars and the other Death Star and the bigger Death Star, and each ship is larger. And, and in some sense, what the movies keep on telling you is that, yeah, that's all just noise because the real things are, you know, the the one on one lightsaber duel, right? With and and then the Force. And, and I think what's so interesting is that Vader knows this on the dark side, and then like Yoda and Luke, and they know this on the light side. And and so, and for them, like the only two options are to be on the light side or the dark side. And, you know, the Empire and its military might is all just kind of like, you know. It's window dressing. It's window for, dressing. Yeah. And then to see Kylo Ren say, no, there's an option that, like, just forgets all of that. And, you know, we will make it up ex nihilo. And, and, and even, right, even though we were initiated into the Force and we know its power, but we're willing to put it. I don't think anyone in any of the movies who was, who was a, a Force-sensitive person ever thought that way, right? It was either, will you be on the light side, will you be on the dark side, not – you know, option C, I'm just doing my own thing. So like, so the Empire or the, whatever, these become, even the Republican, these become stages where the drama plays out, but they're not the drama itself. I mean, it, Well, but I also think they're a reflection on this modern question, which is, well, what is the power? You know, like right now we do have these machines um, and, and we do have this massive power. And of course, in a bunch of the movies, these things destroy planets. But the movies, the way they tell the story, that's not what's interesting. What's interesting is, you know, these very intimate personal battles, um, where they're both physical, but they're spiritual, right? Will you succumb? How does anger 
embody you? How do, how do you control anger? How do you channel it, right? So those are, are a very different question than what is your technical military capacity? And I think that, that that's, I think, another way in which these movies are a comment on modernity and belief is because we do have these very sophisticated machines that do change the way we interact with things and the way we, you know, humans' ability to control their lives. And yet, is that really where it's at or not? Or, you know, is there always going to be another dimension, right? And, right, it's always interesting that in the movies, the Empire always has, their, like, two guys, right? In the newer ones, Kylo Ren and Hux, right? One in charge of the kind of military hardware and the other one almost like, you know, in charge of the, the spiritual side. And, you know, Vader, I think it changes a little bit, but certainly in the first movie, in A New Hope, there's these... You know, these various generals that Vader seems to be a little bit subservient to, or it's a little bit ambiguous, or maybe it changes through the movies. But they're in charge of the Death Star and the destroyers and all the, you know, all the lasers. And he's sort of a little bit like where he fits into that is not totally clear. And I think the same thing with Kylo Ren. Like, where does the, the Sith fit in with the Empire is a little bit of a tension, but I think that's that's the tension of modernity. And then on the on the on the resistance side as well, right? They have their planes and they you know there's the Han Solo character or the Poe Dameron character who is not the force person. He's the you know the jockey, you know, who flies the planes well. But then you know that only works right sort of in and around uh the force. So I think like in that way it's also talking uh, something about the way we engage spiritual questions in a world that, you know, compared to 100 or 200 years ago, is just a radically different place in terms of humans' mastery or potential mastery over their environment via technological means. It's interesting. Sean Kelly and Herbert Dreyfus, who's, I think, just died, uh, they're both high. I mean, Kelly's at Harvard, but they wrote a book called All Things Shining. The subtitle was like reading the classics in a secular age, but it's really kind of Heidegger's all over the book. But And they say, with Heidegger, we'd say, we love science, but we're wary of technology at times. And they talk about just how you, how like uh, technology can serve to sort of really alienate you from the environment. And it, like you consider like the way a woodsman thinks about a tree versus the way a big corporation logging machine, which is you, where you have no idea, a sense of the, sure. the environment you're doing at. And like this, so is there something like where are we, do you see is what you take away from this uh, as far as a cultural picture is that, there's almost seems to be a correlation between technical aptitude and capacity on the rise and spiritual insight declining or you know I think that's that's a story a lot of people like to tell I'm not sure that's quite right I don't think that's what's the only thing going on in Star Wars I mean I think part of it is right just the way that you know to try to think about the different kind of quote spiritual questions out there so there's a really obvious ones of you know the light and the dark and the good and the bad of the force and then there's this other that's kind of backdrop to that and those kind of work in tandem and there and then you know in the new movies there's this other sort of thing so i you know this other dynamic that i talked about uh in the piece i think it's a little too easy to say well as our technical capacities get stronger our spiritual sensitivities get Weaker. I think that's true in some ways, but um, or is there just a, a, a core? Is there like a relationship there that's not necessary? But it just seems 
It is interesting that well, as, as look, we get more advanced. Well, certainly, you know, if you're just thinking like biblical sense, right? So when there was a, a drought, the immediate thing was God's mad at us, <laughs> right. right? And now yeah. we have weather and model forecasts and all, right, all sorts of explanations. Now, you can still say that behind all those things is that God is mad at us. But there's a lot more space in between God is mad at us and there's a drought where you start talking about high pressure and low pressure and all the meteorological sort of things. So I think that you know, there is a way that that happens, right? How we understand disease, how we, right? How we understand any of these things. So we, we, we have a very, even lay people, and I'm definitely one of those, right? Has a very scientific view of disease. Well, there's cells and they grow and the cancer and the this and that, right? And then the doctors tell you stuff and you kind of like filter that into your brain. You probably get it all wrong, but, but you're still thinking that way. And, you know, a much more biblical way to say it's like God is punishing me. Now, you could still say that, and many people do, but even there, it's mediated by a kind of molecular biological story. So in that way, you know, our, our technologically attuned world um, makes it more, you know, puts a lot of more space between uh, theological explanations uh, for the phenomenon we see, though they're not impossible. Um, but they are, they are po- or the other way to say it, in the biblical world, the question was, which God did this? And in our world, the question is, does God do this or do these other processes do this? And if God does this, how do those things interact? So that's a really different uh, place to be. And in that way, sure. But, you know, the Bible's world just had a question about, you know, which God and which types of gods and which types of forces are at work. And in some ways, it's really different. And in some ways, maybe not. And and you tag your piece, I mean, this is with, with this sort of popular storyline kind of you know the spirit the spiritual but not religious kind of theme i mean it seems to me that the the rise of the non-participants in religious traditions right that has not like a massive spike in atheism has not corresponded with that right so that's i mean so it's there is a summarize but you know you'll see people like bill maher oftentimes will equate like the rise of the nuns to, in some sense, some kind of, you know, the atheists like me are on the rise, but that's sociologically doesn't seem to be the case. There's some bump, but it's not like massive. So, I mean, what is that? Do you, is someone, I mean, you look, look, locate yourself, right? as a modern Orthodox Jew. So, I mean, that seems to be a, a context where it's, there's not a lot of daylight, right? Between spirits, between spirituality and religious practice. I mean, you're located in a tradition that's got, clearly defined practices sure. and texts. And it doesn't, it doesn't adapt as well to like what, um, what is Robert Bella uh, inhabits the heart called Sheilism, you know? Like, right, right. So, I mean, so how do you view that trend as someone that sits well, in the you, location you well, do? Well, you know, I think that the spiritual, not religious point is in this first instance, a comment on assumptions about modernity, that modernity would bring about the end of kind of religion, which is certainly the kind of view, you know, 50, 60 years ago, uh, because we don't need this apparatus anymore. And the spiritual, not religious trend, sort of in, in the first instance, it cuts against that. It says, look, it may be true that organized religion is um, less appealing, although we could debate whether that's actually true, but that's the story, right? Uh, but nevertheless, even amongst that set, the, the, the human need for, for spiritual, you know, 
assumptions and undertakings and practices um, remains, right? And I think that's like what it is in the first instance. And then you say, okay, that's from like the secular side. And then from the religious side, what do you do with this? Um, now you're, of course, right. You know, Judaism is not orthodox. Judaism is nothing if not you know prescribed and scripted. Although you know, even within that, there's there's a variety of practices that you can see as kind of drawing on this energy um, uh, within that tradition. But of course, confined by by those boundaries, or at least f- trying to fit itself within those boundaries. So I don't think any spiritual economy is really. Uh, immune to this. Um, clearly, questions of individualism and finding your own personal meaning and authenticity are going to show up in, um, in e- even in very traditional religious communities. They're going to look differently than they do sort of outside of them, but those trends are, are there. You know, I think all religions in the 19th century you know, a fire and brimstone, you know, to use the Christian metaphor speech, would have, you know, would have been a, an acceptable type of sermonic practice, and certainly Jewish uh, equivalents of that. You hear much less of that today, right? Uh, within religions and outside of them. Now, why? Well, because obviously it's, it's the same forces at work. Now, you know, an Orthodox Jewish version of a non-fire brimstone, you know, uh, discussion or, you know, sermon is going to sound different than others, but it's still totally there. And, and do you? I mean, it's it, it's interesting because I think that a lot of Christians who become there, there's there's a sociological term I read a, a year or so ago that where this guy was saying within the nuns there's a group called the Duns, and he says that there are people that you ask them what they believe they're still Christians and they still have the, formed theological views they're just done with institutional church and it seems like there that's a little more doable especially for a Protestant. Because, you know, a Catholic's going to look over and say, well, you, don't, you know, you're just playing at church anyway. <laughs> like, you're right. not really that institutional anyway. Whereas it, it seems like uh, in certain Jewish contexts, that would be a harder move, right? Although, although, although strange, there is secular Jews. I mean, there are secular Jews. Well, that's that say- the thing that from a Jewish perspective, it's not the 20th, but really the 19th or 21st, but really the 19th century, which is the one that kind of saw the great breakdown of traditional religious life and authority. Um, you know, that happens between, depending where, but basically in Western Europe and Germany in the first half of the 19th century and then in Eastern Europe in the second half and into the beginning of the 20th century, right? And then orthodoxy is sort of a response to the fact that the world turned upside down. And that was a very small minority uh, throughout the 20th century and in the last generation or two has grown, but it's still today in America, I think, no more than 10%. So... It, right, and sort of like and now that's where I am, and so my world looks that way. But if you look at the Jewish landscape generally, it's not the last thirty years that have you know been this sort of breakdown of traditional religious uh, identification and ideology and practice. That all happened a long time ago. If anything, the last thirty, forty years have seen the decline of uh, heterodox Judaism, or at least in some ways, right? There's a lot of internal Jewish uh, dialogues, but certainly the growth of orthodoxy from a, you know, two, three percent to now 10. And, it, you know, if current trends hold, it'll be much long, uh, much more. And people is, is this because when you're in one of those, if we call it heterodox traditions, that you're, you're much more likely to intermarry. You're much more likely to not be observant. You're much more likely to have kids than that don't have received traditions that sort of just assimilate into general. Yeah, that's basically been the story. Um, you know, fewer kids just to start with. Um, 
you know, higher intermarriage. I mean, intermarriage rates are, I haven't seen the statistics, but they're, you know, they're, they're already, it's about maybe the second or third generation that they're at least 40, 50, 60%. And then, you know, just assimilate as anti-Semitism of the, you know, no Jews or dogs allowed variety ceases. It's just much easier to do that. And that's, you know, sociologists debate what has happened. But I think the kind of simple story or the reflexive story is that the barriers into American life, uh, it sort of melted away, you know, in the second half of the 20th century. And that enabled assimilation um, without the kind of pull back into the community. You know, assimilation was a goal of many Jews who came to America in the 1880s, 1890s, but they wanted to assimilate in order to be able to get jobs and be accepted, but not to assimilate out of their Judaism. And they couldn't because the society wouldn't let them even if they wanted to. Uh, and that changed, let's say, after 19, you know, after World War II, basically, and after, you know, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and you just see massive structural shifts uh, because of that. No, you... Grew up in Orthodox Jewish yes. home. And and this was in New York? No, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, you grew up in Atlanta, right. You lived in the Upper West Side of New York for a while, right? Uh, I did. I went to law school and then I was a lawyer. So you're growing up in Atlanta in an Orthodox Jewish home. How do you get from there to modern Orthodoxy and wanting to, and also you're, we're, you know, we're a Catholic university <laughs> and you're the interest in religion a lot. Like how do you, how does that? Sure. Well, I mean, I grew up in a modern Orthodox home, so okay. I don't, you know, that, that's a kind of division within the. So I, I, I you know, I grew up basically uh, sort of where I am uh, now. Um, sorry, what, what, what was? Oh, uh, so how do you get? How did you get? Like the, the story from, and when you say modern orthodox, I mean like you would. So we're thinking something in between, sort of uh, like a, 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 you could also just school. call it orthodox, right? Okay, orthodox. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, it depends how fine-tuned you want to get okay. to it, but um, there's a way to... But more traditional it. than conservative. Yes, yes. Certainly. Yes. But yes, but sure. among certain Orthodox, you'd be you'd be more... Uh, more open to the world. Right, okay. Um, you know, the, the default lines have to do with general cultural openness, um, appreciation of secular education. Uh, it used to be that uh, approaches to the state of Israel was a big dividing line, though that's probably disappeared to a large degree. Um, and, you know, affectation, um, sort of where you situate yourself. But in terms of practice, there's, you know, it very much draws from the same well in terms of the, the texts we study and, and sort of how we orient our, ourselves. Obviously, some theological differences. But I think if you step, if you're not in it, it's, I think the category is orthodox. Okay, and so you, at one point, you're like, hey, I want to study, you know, I want to be, you know, go to law school. Where's that? Yes, because no Orthodox Jews have ever gone to law school. Is that right? <laughs> it's really, it's really, yeah. right. no, it's really surprising. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so, you know, I spent, um, I went to a, a, here I'd say, I went to an ultra-Orthodox high school where you spent a lot of time studying Talmud. And then, um, and then I spent four years in different yeshivas in Israel uh, studying Talmud. So that's been a part of my life for a very long time and some sense part of my identity. Um, and obviously, a lot of what you say in the Talmud is law. And uh, interestingly, and I think you know people who don't attend yeshivas don't know this, that 
for for a variety of reasons, the stuff studied in yeshiva is not really what we think of, what an outsider thinks of as Jewish laws, like the laws of kosher, laws of the Sabbath, or something like that. But it's actually much more laws of contract, laws of property, and laws of tort, and then, you know, the way marriage and divorce works in on the property side. So there's a lot of, like, uh, we call it civil law. And, you know, I, I started thinking about this stuff, and that, that got me, well, how does this work elsewhere? And, and what do we do in American law? And, and then he's talking about, like, legal structure questions, legal process questions. How, do, how does the law change? Is there a difference between divine law and human law? And all that kind of stuff was, from a young age, swirling around my head and, you know, sort of, sort of sent my way to law school, which had the added benefit of, oh, well, if that doesn't work out, I'll always be a corporate lawyer, uh, which I did for a little bit. Um, <laughs> but, you know, after doing that for, for some time, I, I realized that wasn't for me. And I, and I really loved law school and I loved – you know, I thought my professors had great jobs, and I was always interested in this question of uh, you know religious law and the fact that Judaism is a you know it's a religious legal tradition. But I mean, it's a it's a legal tradition, it's a religious legal tradition. But you know, the law is sort of so much part of its DNA and identity. Um, so that's sort of how I wound up uh, doing that. It's interesting because you're a Catholic law law school. Do you find that there? Somebody noted that before. Justice Gorsuch, there were only Catholics and Jews on right. the Supreme Court, right? Do you think there's something to that in Catholicism is Protestantism? There is a kind of uh, casuistic tradition, True. you know, much more. Non, I mean, I can't think of anything in Protestantism that's, right. that's akin to that at all. Um, do you think does that feel like a does it make a, a like a Catholic law school? Well, something. I think the cat. Well, first of all, there are not that many Protestant law schools. If we just start there, I mean, I believe there's Regent and Liberty. Um, that both have law schools, but most of what we think of Jay Seculo is at the Liberty right? Jay, is that the yeah, guy? I think so. That guy, I still, I've heard his reaction before. It's a constitutional crisis, <laughs> right? So, so I think if you just think of religious law schools or religious universities, even uh, they're overwhelmingly Catholic. Um, so you know, I think that uh, to to the school's credit, they were interested in 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 saying. What does it mean to be a religiously affiliated law school, which is the kind of words that we use? Um, and so obviously this, you know, a Catholic school is going to have a place for, for you know, Catholic legal thought. But you know, they had a broader vision of themselves and thought that they should have someone who who've, comes at this uh, from a Jewish perspective and is interested in Jewish law. And look, full disclosure, I teach contracts. I teach insurance. You know, <laughs> I do that stuff too. I don't just uh, study Talmud here. But, um, but that's definitely kind of – so it's not surprising uh, that I'm at a Catholic law school. I think most people – I'm trying to think of people who do uh, – Jewish law. So, there, uh, so there's another uh, Protestant law school I'm thinking of right now where I have a good friend at Pepperdine. Okay, yeah. But um, Emory, which has a religiously affiliated uh, track. So, so, so it's not surprising that Catholic schools uh, and religious schools will have, you know, some people interested in, in Jewish law, um, even if they're not, you know, Jewish law schools. There's really only two that arguably fit into that category, uh, Turo and, and Cardoza, Cardoza's Yeshiva University's uh, law school in New York and uh, Turo out on Long Island. They both have people who do, uh, or several people that do Jewish law as well. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? 
because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Snyder, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. No. I mean, we're in a time culturally where it seems like the, the culture war, war stuff is heating up. I mean, Donald Trump, he see, he seems to like that kind of thing. I mean, it's where kind of he gets his base kind of, or at least part of his base wound up. I mean, as somebody who cares about politics, legal theory, you know, and and issues of religion and culture, like how do you, how do you see that the culture war kind of dynamic and, and how it, affects the sort of intersection of, you know, religious civil society, like our culture. Well, like, you you know, I think one of the things you've seen is religion has become, I mean, law and religion today is a much more central field than it was even 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. Um, because like you said, it's so central to the culture wars. And then there's the constitutional law side of it, which is actually not really what I do. I kind of dabble in that, but I wouldn't call myself a scholar of law and religion in that way. I'm more interested in the sort of conceptual, historical, theological side than the constitutional law side. But, um, you know, clearly these cases, I think the guest you had on, uh, last week on your show was, was talking about this, of how, how questions of, of cultural identity, religious identity are very central now. And then they get litigated in the political realm, in the, in the judicial realm. You know, obviously in law school, we tend to think of that. Arguably Trump won because he promised a certain type of Supreme Court justice to people who otherwise, you know, don't really live his life. Uh, and think his life is probably not exemplary, but but you know the the promise of what became Neil Gorsuch, uh, arguably uh, uh, did it for him. So um, that's clearly going on. What worries me is that uh, we are moving to a place that there is a religious party and a secular party. I don't think that's good for either party, and I don't think that's good for religion. Uh, yeah, nineteen fifty. How often you went to church or synagogue? Whether you b- believe in God, that was not a reliable predictor of whether or not you were going to go to vote for Eisenhower. I mean, it just w- wouldn't have been for, for white for whites in America. Going to church is the is like it, church is one of the most reliable barometers. Like if you go, I think three or more times a month, you're all, the, the, the odds you're voting Republican are overwhelming. Although, and I'd ask you more, but but one of the things that was interesting to me reading on the sociology is the you know the evangelicals who don't go to church. 
Yeah, the kind of yeah. I mean, this is. I, I think there are a lot of people actually for whom, and that 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 seems to be Trump's one of his very strong bases. Yeah, I think there's a group of people in the country that are that are for whom Christian is kind of an ethnicity. We're not Jews. We're not Muslims. We're nationalists. We're not really got a church, but we're culturally conservative, traditionalists. So they, so there's this kind of. And I think that that's one of the things that I saw change in the Trump era. And I was, there were always um, theologically. Theological cultural conservatives, you'll call it, um, but there weren't sort of almost atheological cultural. Right, 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 right. Just this kind of nationalist sort of. Right, I think that's a that's a fairly new uh, development. Well, I mean, I guess they're always there, but but that being articulated and kind of thought of as a group uh, outside of certain kind of theological doctrinal uh, positions, but much more. Uh, enmeshed in a, in a kind of cultural. Well, yeah, I think there's something sociologically too. Like I have friends who like would identify, you know, as like Lutheran or something, and they don't go to church. They didn't go to church, but there's still there's this sense of which it's almost like an ethnic thing. And then I think younger generations, if they're not, if, you know, maybe there was a nominal kind of Episcopalian, but they just don't. They wouldn't identify that way. So I think almost in certain parts of the country, even if you're not an observant, and kind of, it's still. Incentivized to identify as one, right. you know, or, right. you know, and have traditional values. Um, although it's interesting because you look at the blue states live ver- live very red aspirational lives. The divorce rates are lower. You know, I think there's a lot of confusion about about those sort of things. Now, look, you know, when you come to a Jewish context, and this is one of the debates we talked about before. You, know, what is the future of the secular Jew or the or the non-observant Jew? So this has been a part of Judaism for about 150, 200 years, um, there's a sense in which that is not a sustainable path. Uh, and certainly if you look, if current trends stay, that's certainly true. Um, but, but it's been a stable part of Judaism for, for, you know, probably four or five generations now, maybe even more, uh, depending on where it's from. So one of the internal Jewish questions here is sort of like, at, at least outside of, of Israel, is there a future for non-observant kind of cultural Judaism? Or does that just too easily merge into some kind of, you know, American mainstream that, that, that loses its identity? I think that's, that's a real question and something that, you know, a real issue. It's funny because we were talking before we started taping about this podcast, Unorthodox, which my friend Mark Oppenheimer, well, actually friends with Mark Leal and Stephanie all to some degree, but th- that panel, that trio represents three different paths. I mean, Stephanie is much less observant. Like Leal has become increasingly more, I think he just started eating kosher. And this is a man who two years ago was like, I like the bacon. Okay. And it, he's moved into much more. Mm-hmm. And then Mark straddles kind of a middle path. I mean, he goes to a conservative, um, so like his kids, I've heard his kids pray in Hebrew beautifully. I mean, and yet, uh, you know, is would clearly be different than sort of modern Orthodox. Sure. So it's very interesting because they, a lot of their discussions seem to, to, to talk about this. Like, what is the future here? And yeah. the range of their guests. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that in, in, in Israel, I think there's seems to me easily to, easy to envision what, you know, a non-observant Judaism looks like. Um, I'm much more uh, skeptical of, of what its future is uh, in the American. Is that because is that because the the, the you can because the culture's Jewish, right? The, right, exactly. So you don't you, you can get sort of the best of the tradition from yeah. Well, the culture's culture. Jewish, um, and the nation's Jewish, and and that that does a lot of work on the framing that that you don't need to do yourself. Uh, whereas if you're if you're you know if you're living in a, in New York or you know, wherever anywhere in America, uh, you got to do it yourself. 
um, or you got to be part of community committed to doing it. And if not, you know, I don't know, right? So it's always dangerous to say this will happen. But what you can say is if current trends hold. Now, will current trends hold? Well, who knows, right? I think 60 years ago they said if current trends hold, there won't be any uh, Orthodox Jews. And that was true uh, if current trends held. You know what? They didn't. It's funny. Leo Leavis tells a story in the podcast where he said, and he's in Tel Aviv, right, which is much le- less. Yeah. He's like 13 drinking a beer in the curb. He's like, it was during Passover. A cop says, hey, kid, you have to pour out that beer. He's like, not because I was 13. Because it was passed. Sure, sure. Yeah, there are laws, there's some laws in Israel about that. And, you know, they they debate about how much, you know, Judaism should be enforced via, via legislation and whatnot. And just recently there's a kind of big uh, bill that passed a lot of controversy about what stores can and should be open on Shabbat. But that these are active uh, questions in, in Israel. But, but Israel's become a more religious place. You know, it was founded as a socialist secular state. You know, I don't know. You could argue how to describe it now, but certainly you wouldn't describe it as a as a as that. It's it's changing, and it's changing pretty pretty quickly. Also, what's the kind of? It's interesting because maybe his star has fallen now, but Steve Bannon has been a, a big cultural player, right, in American politics of late. And I mean, in circles, we're discussing like Judaism and American politics. I mean, what is that? Because it, it's. You know, it is a strange thing. Some people will complain that, that Breitbart is anti-Semitic, and it seems to me that you could marshal a textual evidence for that. Uh, and and yet there are Jews involved. In fact, one of the things where— Well, Breitbart was Jewish. Right, right. And then somebody that wrote this piece about uh, Bill Kristol, renegade Jew, like, you know, about him sort of not, not backing Trump and so being disloyal, that was written by somebody Jewish. I mean, so there's these strange— Yeah, well, the, you know, the the dynamics are shifting. I mean— in a bunch of ways. So, so Bannon was, uh, I believe, shortly after the election, or, or maybe the transition, or you know, somewhere right in the beginning of all this, was invited by the ZOA, the Zionist Organization of America, to be at its gala dinner, and this caused a, you know, so on the one hand, right, the, so this caused a lot of commotion in in the Jewish community. Um, some people, you know, obviously were behind that invitation and strongly supported it, and a lot of people were really against it. You know, it really gets into two types of anti-Semitism or f- two different types of fears, one on the left and one on the right. So the, the anti-Semitism, the fears, I'm sorry, of anti-Semitism on the left are the fears of you, America will not become a safe place for religious minorities, including Jews. Um, the fear of anti-Semitism on the right is the delegitimization de- de- of Israel. Um, obviously, there are people who hold both in that, but but they're they're different archetypes. So a guy like Bannon, who's um, very pro a, a sort of you know Likud Bibi Netanyahu esque vision of Israel, is going to have a lot of support for American Jews that see that as a very <coughs> central part of their Judaism, and whose fear of anti-Semitism is grounded in a fear of the delegitimization of the you know Israeli project. Uh, but that's going to have huge hostility from a type of American Jew, typically more liberal, typically more left, typically more coastal elite, et cetera, who, whose biggest fear is that a rising kind of Bannonism will make America inhospitable uh, for, for non-Christians. And you know the, the number one non-Christians are always the Jews. I've heard Mark Oppenheimer say in the age of rise of Trump, he said, look, do what Jews have learned is if it doesn't start with us, it'll end with us. The, 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 this is the anxiety, right? right? Yeah. You know, born out by history, right? Right, so, right. So, so what, what I learned 
uh, you know, about the rise of Bannon and Trump and all that is, is just how, how anti-Semitism had become a left-right issue within the Jewish community. I think you go back 10 years, you wouldn't have seen that. I mean, maybe the, the, the substructures of that were always there. But, but you now had two narratives of what is the anti-Semitic threat. And you had people arguing, are we more – is the right a bigger threat? Is the left a bigger threat? And you know, shockingly, everyone was very good at pointing out the threats from the other side. So you know, right after the election and when uh, Keith Ellison I think was at that point talked about, right? So basically you had the people saying, you know, Ellison is the biggest threat to uh, – to, to Judaism and the other people say no Bannon is the biggest threat to Judaism and you see how that immediately feel, feeds into to everything that was going on in the country at the time and, and basically still is does that cut in orthodox it's funny because I had a, a guy on the podcast he's a British evangelical uh, he's an Anglican evangelist which till that day I thought was actually I think Anglican but he's a really interesting guy and he said that in his congregation and these are evangelical Anglican I mean, they're right of center theologically he said their politics are divided right down the He said there's just as many Tories, just as many Labour, and just as many Liberal Democrats. And the fact that you're, they're sort of in the center-right parish. And he says that's his experience with evangelical Christians in England. It's not really... It, the fact that that would be a political identifier at all, right? He says it's just in, in the UK, it wouldn't be sensical. The way it is here, like if you say you're an evangelical Protestant... If you're not a Republican conservative, you'll say it because it's just so. Yeah, so right. these kind of like anxieties around the different sorts of anti-Semitism and the politics that that break down. Is it, do you find all of that within kind of modern orthodoxy? Is it skew a little more one way or the other? Or well, I would say orthodoxy as a whole is certainly more conservative. Although that's that's probably somewhat new in the sense of it's identified as such, meaning arguably it always was, but A, the community was smaller, and B, you know, 30 years ago, just political identity was just much less salient in how you define yourself. I don't remember my parents and their friends talking about politics, and I couldn't tell you who they voted for, um, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s. Um, and now that's more determinative than race. I mean, people would rather, people are more comfortable right, with so, interracial marriage than outside of party. That's marriage. right, that's yeah. right. So, so clearly with, you know, Clearly, uh, orthodoxy is, I don't know if it's become more conservative, but it's become more identified with conservative causes. But within orthodoxy, there's, there are divisions, uh, clearly. Um, so, so I would say, yes, as a whole, um, it's certainly uh, more conservative. Um, but within orthodoxy, there are clearly liberal elements. There are clearly conservatives, both theologically and politically, though those tend to track, which I think is a bad thing. Um, I, I'd love to see, you know, theologically conservative liberals and um, and theologically liberal conservatives. Um, they largely track. I would say modern orthodoxy is a place where you're most likely to be able to be either or, um, for a bunch of reasons. Um, but uh, but modern orthodoxy is the place where I wouldn't say it's fifty fifty. It depends what the issues are. I would say you know modern orthodox Jews are quite hawkish on Israel stuff and in that sense identify much more with the Republican Party. Uh, on the social and economic issues, it kind of breaks, I don't know if it's 50-50, but it's probably not more than, you know, 35, you know, it's at least 35% uh, one side or the other, but it's certainly been trending more conservative. I think that's that's fair to say. And on the Israel question too, that's just, that's also mainstream almost in both parts. I mean, it's only the left wing of the Democratic Party, right? That's really antagonistic. I mean, there's different views on sure what, you know, the peace situation should be like, but that's a pretty, 
most of America is pretty pro-Israel, right? Well, sure, in in some sense, but um, I think there's a big fear in the Jewish community that that is not going to be true in going forward. That 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 will be a point of division uh, between the parties. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about you know there, there's different narratives when BB came and and um, you know went to the Congress to go against the Iran deal, right? That's a, that's a pretty significant moment of the leader of the Jewish people, or certainly the prime minister of Israel, you know, whether he's the leader of Jewish people or not, is an interesting question. Uh, but he certainly presents himself as such, right? Comes and kind of come, comes in very definitively on the side of a basically domestic argument. Um, now some people thought that was great and some people thought that was horrible. Um, but, I think there's a lot of anxiety in the Jewish community that um, in an era where everything becomes polarized, Israel will become polarized. And, and if it does, it's pretty clear how it's going to break. Um, you know, it's not going to be the Democratic Party that's going to be the big pro-Israel party. Um, so I think there, there's a lot of anxiety in that. And then there's, you know, uh, mutual recriminations as to who's causing that. Um Right? Is it that that? Uh, yeah, but that's clearly uh, on the agenda. You've written. I, I for this interview, you sent me some stuff you wrote, and you've written a piece on basically Jesus's legal theory. You, like you look at rabbinically, and it's one of the most fascinating things I, I, I've read. And it's going to play a part in a forthcoming book, right? Yeah. Uh, but you, you basically review somebody. This was a, a judge you clerked for, or somebody who yeah, wrote, his name's Michael McConnell. Now a professor of law at Stanford, and you—he read this thing on sort of religion, and it was like a, a was it a book of essays or? Yeah, I believe it was a collection of essays on uh, Christian legal theory, and it was spread out, right? Some left, right, center, yeah. And, and what you notice, he asked your opinion. You're like, well, why isn't there anything on Jesus? He even really not much on Paul, and it's kind of what's at the heart of the New Testament, and and, and out of that comes this essay you wrote. Yeah, so so I went. Um, I went out to clerk for uh, for this judge who, at the time, um, lived in Salt Lake City. He's not Mormon, um, but you know. So it was my introduction to <laughs> hi two religious minorities. Me, it's, it's right. like a joke. No, well, <laughs> you know, when I City. lived in Utah, I was finally a Gentile, um, <laughs> uh, which was that's which, an unorthodox. They call um, they call. Uh, uh, what do they say? They're, they're like Mormons, are like Judaism, beta. They like they, they call all their outsiders Gentiles. You know, this like well, they, yeah, you know, they, was, they, they Zion, got their own homeland. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to Zion and Moab, and uh, um, you know, the the river there was Jordan. They got a Salt Lake. Um, yeah, I mean that that was a fascinating experience. Um, but I had never, you know, like most Orthodox Jews, I had never read the New Testament. Um, in fact, you know, there's a lot of a lot of reason to say that one's religiously prohibited from doing so. But I thought, you know, I'm going out to clerk for this judge who's a very well-known uh, scholar of law and religion. Um, and this was right at the beginning of, I was in his first batch of clerks. So he hadn't been a judge yet, but he had been a professor for a while at first University of Chicago and then at University of Utah. He's now at Stanford. Um, and uh, so, you know, he had that reputation and, and we connected on those lines. And then I was going to go live in, in, in Utah. And, you know, it's a pretty big, different place than the Upper West Side of Manhattan where I was living at the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I thought, oh, I, should, I should read some of the new time. And I did. And you know, I just literally started at the beginning. And I was shocked by how, I would say, familiar it was in the sense that, you know, I was reading in English, obviously. Well, not obviously. But in my head, kind of translating some of this into Hebrew, 
especially when they quote biblical verses and whatnot. And I was just shocked at how like in discussion this was with with what I would think of as the mission in the Talmud and the Bible, but the Bible obviously. But but then when I saw that Jesus and the Pharisees are arguing about points of law, about Shabbat, about kosher, about circumcision, like I'm like really that's what this is about. And that was fascinating to me because I never known that because you know in 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 your non-Christians' popular conception of what Christianity is about. It's about the Trinity. It's about Jesus. It's about incarnation. It's, a, it's about the the um, sacrament, right? But it's not about this. So I was just like really shocked by A, how familiar it was, and B, how it was talking about stuff that we talked about internally to Judaism about, you know, we don't we maybe don't use the words letter and spirit, but that question is always there in a legalistic regime uh, like rabbinic Judaism, and um, and then, you know, I was like, okay, well, someone must have talked about this in the 2,000 years of writing on Christianity. And he gave me this book, and I believe it was called Christian Legal Theory, Christian's Perspectives on Legal Theory or something, you know, similar to that. And I was assuming that the whole book would be about this because how could it not be? And I then started looking – and like you said, it was it was not just by one person. It was a collection of essays. So you had a, a breadth of, of theological and social and perspectives and legal perspectives. But no one was engaging this question. And I thought that was so odd. Because As I was reading this piece, I thought – I was just like – bells were going off. Because like, he's absolutely right. Because then like – because I think about all the political theology and stuff I've read. And like it all mirrors this. I mean it's just it, – <coughs> these questions aren't deeply taken up very often. Yeah. So, you know, I, my job is not to say why not, although I think that's a fascinating question. But I want to say, okay – and I called it, you know, Jesus' legal theory or rabbinic reading because I want to be very clear what I'm doing. I'm going to read Jesus the way someone trained on rabbinics would. And – you know, he says these things that um, a lot of them have either what I call would call parallels or anti-parallels in rabbinic literature. And, you know, it's the, historically it's complicated to know exactly who the Pharisees were, what the relationship to what became the mission and the Talmud is, where that all fits in. But clearly there are, I would say, patterns of argument that are resonant uh, between them. Um, you know, I think one of my favorites is where, you know, Jesus says uh, that, you know, you guys are worrying about how to tithe, dill, mint, and cumin, but, you know, ignoring the weightier matters of the law. Now, from a halachic, from a Jewish legal perspective, it's actually a fascinating question, which the Mishnah takes up, because dill, mint, and cumin could be thought of as spices or basically weeds, and if they're just random grasses, well, those don't need to be tithed. But if they're food that's grown in a, in a place that you like, care about it, and you're so the Mishnah, of course, discusses you know, three herbs. It's not dill, mint, and cumin, but it's pretty close. And they say, well, if they kind of grow in the wild, then you don't have to tie them. But if you're fencing off the field, i.e. you care about them, then you do have to tie them. And, you know, when one person's like reductio ad absurdum is another person's like serious conviction, like that's always something worth looking at. So that's what I call an anti-parallel. And then, of course, there's parallels. And I was just shocked how in at least, you know, the literature accessible to me, which is American lawyers and legal theorists writing from a Christian perspective, they just didn't see any of this, or at least it didn't interest them. And that really floored me. And that's why I thought I, I, I had to write this article. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you talk about how so much of Jesus' perspective is teleological, right? It's, it's like it's not about 
the the the, the I, I forget the one I, story where which rabbis alleged that somebody said recite the whole Torah on one leg and we'll it's convert. Hillel, yeah. yeah, it's Hillel, right? And they say, says, love the Lord your God, you know, and all the rest is commentary. I mean, it, there's a sense in which it seems like Jesus makes a full-throated assertion of that. Like, the, the, it, in fact, you know, I can think of places in the Hebrew Bible where you get the sense of, look, if you do the rituals, right, but you forsake the poor and you're just all, you know, if you're harming, that, that, that you're, you're unclean, you know, this yeah, is not. That's Isaiah and yeah. Jeremiah. But, but, Amos, right? but you can't, I can't think of anything like where Jesus says where nothing that goes into you can defile you. Only what comes out from the heart. I mean, right. this, this right. just seems so. Right. That's very non-rabbinic. Yeah. I mean, that seems to and be. The truth is when you read this stuff as a Jew, it's like Jesus sounds like a reformed rabbi. Um, I mean, that was honestly, and again, I was young and, you know, but that was honestly like my, my kind of like, oh, of course I've heard these arguments before. This is basically the argument of, you know, a certain type of 19th century reform Judaism, which is that, you know, you guys are just knee deep in the Talmudic picune, you know, uh, details and don't see the, you know, don't see the forest or the trees. And Jesus makes that form of argument a lot. Now, one of the really interesting things is that sometimes they make the same argument, and this is really to maybe circle back to where tradition comes in, that the idea that um, um, you know man is made for the Sabbath and not the Sabbath for man, um, that's in the Talmud too. But in the rabbinic context, what that means is if someone is going to die or you know or sick, then you violate the Sabbath for him because, you know, ultimately uh, the Sabbath is defeasible in the face of, of, of sickness or certainly death. Whereas in the Christian context, particularly the Protestant context, that means, oh, man is made for, you know, Sabbath, not Sabbath for man. Don't worry about all the details. So that's a place that, I, you know, I put that in the piece because that to me is really fascinating. It's literally the same teaching. But put in the Talmudic context, that's a, okay, this is a place where the law where law A must yield to law B because law B is now going to tell us that we violate Sabbath to, to protect human life. Whereas you put that in a Protestant context and that means all these Sabbath regulations, you know, don't, don't get hung up on them. And, and that's really the way I think the Jewish tradition reads um, or the rabbinic tradition reads those statements in Isaiah and Amos about the sacrifice. It's not like don't do it. It's don't think that just doing it is, is the point. So what's so interesting to me is how literally the same words, depending on the on the you know theological and, and legal f- furniture and framework that that the people who are reading it have, wind up meaning totally different things. It's funny too because there are New Testament scholars that would argue. I mean, this is a divided question. Like, would Paul have cared about Sabbath at all? Because there are certain right. places like in in Galatians, other places where they're talking about days and whether or not. I mean. These are certain ritual days, certainly not the Sabbath. And Oscar are saying, no, the, 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 and you, you see the, the ones that would argue that way would probably be receptive to your reading on Jesus because it seems like like a, a, a continuity to, to take Jesus' take on this and wind up and relativizing it all together. Right. Well, you know, again, so the question of when, they're, when the students are in the fields and they say they're hungry. So I read that as, as a Jew and say, well— how hungry are they? So if they're hungry, like we're going to die, then of course um, they're allowed to violate the Sabbath for that. But if they're like, eh, I could use a snack, well, not. And the truth is, and you know, I'm far from a New Testament scholar, but but you could. There's a way to read those stories that Jesus is 
uh, using rabbinic terminology, maybe biting at the edges of rabbinic uh, injunctions, but not of biblical ones. But then there's a way to read those stories that no, he's and you know even his his argument of sort of like well, um, you know, didn't David do this with Eviatar, right? So that's a kind of like intertextual argument. And then there's like, um, you know, and then there's a question: man is made for Sabbath, uh, man, Sabbath is made for man and not man for Sabbath. And then there's a so the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath, right? So you can even see those as three different arguments. And maybe the first one is one that kind of sits fairly comfortably in a kind of rabbinic regime. But the third one certainly doesn't. Yeah, and you, okay, at the end of this piece, you do something which I find pretty fascinating. Uh, you, so basically you say that, um, you talk about Paul and letter and spirit, and you talk about how uh, in contemporary jurisprudence, jurisprudence, you'd say sort of like, on the left, you're going to go with like spirit, right? On the right, you're going to do letter. And on the left, you have substantive justice, right? The spirit versus the right procedural justice. You know, uh, the left is equality of outcome. The right is equal of, of, of opportunity. You talk about like um, living interpretation on the left versus originalism and textualism on the right. Uh, you know, on the left, you have context. On the right, you have text. And, and I take your, your your point to be like, well, it's funny because the people that are arguing we should have this Christian nation and this religious, you know, the traditionalists don't sound very much like, most of them are Christians and, and they don't sound very much like Jesus or Paul. <laughs> right, right. So this is, of course, the part of the piece that got the most pushback. Um, and, you know, I wanted to be very, and still do, I mean, I wrote this, uh, I think, 11 years ago or something. Um, so I wanted to be uh, careful, but it's, what I would say is, if you read Jesus through a rabbinic perspective, it's clear that he takes the type of view about the Bible or about you know Jewish law that is more consistent with what we would call kind of realist or context sensitive jurisprudence, and much less uh, with the other. Um, you know, and, and and whereas the Pharisees and maybe even the, the Talmudic rabbis as a whole are more comfortable with what we might call formalist, uh, originalist. Uh, textualist type of jurisprudence. Now, the answer that people said, and I think it's totally legit, is that, you know, who's to say that reading the Constitution and reading the Bible is the same thing, right? Uh, one is about the power of the state, and one is about your relationship to God. So I don't think it is, you know, I, I don't think it is fair to say that these are necessarily so, but I still think it's worth pointing out that there is a deep resonance between the reasoning mechanisms and the, and the, and the, and the type of way you want approaches tradition and text and legal argument uh, floating around and again, that that I do think that Jesus and the rabbis, at least as presented, you know, as I present the article, which is not really their necessarily their historical conversations, but at least the way each tradition emerged, do part on 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 this type of question more so in a Protestant reading, I think, than a Catholic one. Yes, in here at Villanova, and far from an expert in this, but clearly, you know, the Catholic tradition has a deep, you know tradition of kizuistry and, and its own sort of questions of canon law. Um, I think much less so in the, in the Protestant one. So I think that this is, this is the most true of the way Protestants tend to, to, to approach things. And, you know, I start there with the story in the church. I don't know if you want to get into yeah, that. Yeah. Well, you're, you're basically like, uh, you're, you're in this, uh, Presbyterian on a, on a Jesus, you're at a Presbyterian church and an adult ed class. And they're asking you, are you, are you, you tell them, uh, what's the, well, yes. Yeah, so what's the first commandment? Genesis one, you get them to, 
figure out to be, be fruitful and multiply, and you start saying, well, how many kids? And that was great. So, you know, I just, I mean, I sort of thought this would happen. It, it worked even better than I imagined. So I was asked to, by, by, by Judge McConnell to come talk to his church group, and we decided that the, the topic would be, you know, how the rabbis read the Bible. And I went in and I asked them, um, I, and this was a, you know, a, I think either before or after services, I don't remember, but, you know, adult education group, there's people who knew what they were doing. Um, and I asked them what the first commandment in the Bible was, which itself was interesting how they answered that. But eventually I told them that at least uh, the rabbis thought that by first, so, because they initially thought first meant like primary. And they also thought commandment means of the Ten Commandments. That's interesting there, even how you, how the how you receive the question. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But but I said no, starting in Genesis. So I said um, that well, just take it from me that the rabbis of the Talmud think that it's um, be fruitful and multiply. And then they said, okay, they they got where this coming from. And then I said, how many? And I just got blank stares. And they're like, how many what? And I'm like, well, how many children? I'm like, how many children what? So I asked them, well, do you guys believe the Bible is the word of God? And they all say, yes, yes, of course, of course, of course. I said, well, do you believe that, um, you know, that you should aim to live and live out and fulfill the word of God? Of course, of course, of course. So I said, so wouldn't you want to know how many children to have to be fruitful and multiply? And what was fascinating is that it was pretty clear they had never thought about the question. It, I was much less interested in what answer they'd come up with. Where, from a Jewish perspective, of course you're going to think about that quick question. And I think even f- Jews who are not trained Talmudically, who never studied it, but like they will immediately understand that's a kind of question to ask. And that to me was really fascinating. So then I kind of was on a roll. So I said, well, you know, the rabbis of Thomas H. too. And there's a debate. Of course there is. Um, is it a male and a female or two males? Okay. Then we go back and forth on that a little bit. I said, but you know, that's, that's just, now we're just getting started. So I said, well, what if, um, what if you have two kids? So I said, well, who does the obligation attach to? Is it about the man? Is it about the woman? Is it about the marriage? What if you have the kids, but the kids die? What if the kids die, but they themselves had kids? Or if the kids are born with you know, genital defects that they can't reproduce? So all this stuff is discussed in the Talmud in the later literature. And they were, by the end, bug-eyed. And I'm like, okay, we've now come to the difference between how these traditions read the Bible. And I, it, it wound up being kind of a remarkably effective way to dramatize you know, just a different intuition. So I said, well, well how do you think about this question? Because that was interesting to me. I, I didn't know the answer to that. And um, it was pretty clear that they hadn't ever quite conceptualized it that way. And then they said, well, it's not so clear that it's a commandment to any individual person. Maybe it's a blessing to mankind as a whole, which is, you know, totally respectable read. Um, and that's why they hadn't thought of it. But then I said, okay, but like when you do need to think about this kind of question, how do you do it? And they said things like, well, we would pray on it. We would uh, seek counsel. And it just struck me these are such different ways of inhabiting a religious, uh, um, you know, desire, religious emotion, religious duty. Um, Because you you would never say, "Well, I'm going to pray on it." What do you mean? Like study the Talmud, study the codes, study the thing, and it's right here. Or, or, or or even if you go and ask a rabbi, which you would, but the rabbi's not going to go pray on it. He's going to consult his wisdom and knowledge for it. These are. Conceptualizes legal questions that there's an answer to. And even if you can't figure out the answer, then there's second order rules to figure out what. But the idea that, like, this is, like, we'll pray on it just was, is, was totally foreign to a Jewish ear. But, but seems, from what I took from them, a very reflexive and accurate way of, at least they, the way they would inhabit kind of encountering this question. I think this is a, 
under-discussed but deeply fundamental difference between the like religious architecture of, of, of these traditions. You only see Protestants do stuff like that on like questions of sexuality, maybe of the past few decades abortion. And they'll try to come up with a textual argument that's specific because of the, because of and the, if I, if I understand right, they're often relying on more Catholic thought. Is that right? On abortion? Definitely. Because nobody in, in the early seventies, you could still find people like in, right in Christianity today that did would argue that life didn't begin at conception. I mean, that was very cat. That was, you know, and then the moral majority stuff, Jerry Fallot, that they switched conservative Protestantism on, on that issue. Um, but yeah, it's very, I mean, there's a handful of issues where people start to think concretely. So I remember talking to a, a law professor at, uh, he passed away, unfortunately, since then, Bill Stuntz. He was a, a criminal law uh, professor at Harvard. Um, and uh, I remember, try, you know, evangelical, uh, you know, thinker and, and law professor. I remember asking him about tithing because, you know, that's something he is. So I said, well, how do you know how much to tithe? And his answer was, more than you think you should. <laughs> and I said, and this, again, was just so interesting to me because, you know, again, in, in, in Jewish and culture and halakhic culture, like these are, these are questions that are worked out. And there's basically, you know, one of the tractates of the Mishnah is basically a version, a second century version of an IRS code trying to figure out, well, what's deductible from gross income? What counts as it, right? And all these kind of questions. I mean, they're doing with produce, but it's, it's, they're fundamentally the same questions because if I have to tie the 10th of my produce, I got to figure out what is subject to tithe, what isn't, what year, you know, what I can tithe on what, what's deductible, all these kind of questions that are, and, and that's just, that's just part of the way it, it thinks and that, that this is just so foreign to 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 this other way of, of this other way religious way of being was so interesting to me. It, it strikes me we got this a little bit before, but just I wanted to ask you finally. We, we when people think of religion and law in our culture right now, we're thinking mostly right Hobby Lobby uh, things like with the Affordable Care Act, or can I you know do I have to pay for contraception? Sure. Do I have to bake a cake for this couple that I ever like? Are there? I mean, what what issues are not on the radar, or what do you think is the big issue that people are missing, or what do you think are the big issues in the field? So those are like the you know politically hot issues. Yeah, I think something that that lawyers need to think a lot more about is does law require a grounding theology? You know, law and religion are similar in that they both have like these elaborate citation processes. They both revere their own past and are constantly kind of reflective and reflexive to them. They draw current answers from past texts. Um, and and think about also the theatrics of law, the robes, the bench, the bar. You talk to a judge in a third person the way in the Jewish tradition you talk to a, a esteemed rabbi in the third person. Right? So there's a lot of this stuff that really is the, the, the underlying stuff that holds the thing together that I think – you know, is not going to get the popular attention because you can't like hold a rally about it and start screaming back and forth whether a cake needs to be baked or not. But um, I think that there's a lot of unstated theology in the law um, that lawyers don't like talking about. Um, and of course, this came up in, in a movement of legal realism and critical legal studies that try to like, you know, pull the curtain behind this. But it seems to me that, that our practices of, of, of law and legal rhetoric have a lot in common with sort of certain, there's a certain underlying theology there that is not often talked. There are some scholars that do, um, and did. This was in the 80s. Some people talked about this. Uh, but that's something that, 
not at the popular level, but the scholarly level, I wish there was much more attention to. And does that mirror kind of a popular conversation that's going on today? Like Ross Douthat just wrote this in the New York Times about reviewing this book called The Failure of Liberalism, which actually I'm going to try to get the author on the podcast, but where there's this bigger meta question about the same thing about liberal democracy in general, right? Is it, if it's just procedural, can mm-hmm. it survive? And then the procedure that helps undergird the procedural thing. I mean, I guess it's a similar question on a, on a more targeted. That's right. That's right. And American law has become very procedural. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's I mean, this is sort of my other hat, but, but um, compared to, let's say, other common law traditions, England, Australia, Canada, uh, American law and lawyers think much more about procedural questions. And in fact, there's a way in which the structure of litigation tries to back-end, particularly in federal courts, back-end substantive questions and front-end procedural questions, and that's what the ground is, is, is on. Um, and, you know, that has its own history, you know, from the mid-20th century. But, um, but yes, I, I definitely think that you're right. There is now this question of sort of, you know, if liberalism is just a bunch of procedures, do you, don't you need some some answer under there? And doesn't that answer have to be, if it's not religion in the, you know, capital R sense of the word, is it at least not religion in the lowercase r? And, you know, to circle back, maybe that's sort of one of the issues of Star Wars. And it's, right. it's, it's doing that. You know, I mean, I think it's clear that the themes of light and dark and evil and temptation and sin, right, are, are, are shot through that series. And you wonder, what, why does this have such a deep cultural hold? I mean, I was talking with a friend, what, what, maybe Harry Potter, but I think not even in the last 30 years, has such universal uh, imprint on the culture, you know, that really uh, spans... The, the 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 different divisions that that divide us. Maybe the other thing is NFL football. Yeah, although that might be cracking. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. But like, it seems like to Trump me, has the opposite of the Midas touch. You know, <laughs> but, but, it seem, but it seems to me that right. It's hard to to uh, point to a cultural product that just really is almost a, a unifying text uh, that has been produced in the last thirty years more than Star Wars and. You know, I wonder whether these these sort of religious themes that are kind of sometimes front and center and sometimes background are not part of that, and are not some of the reason for success. Certainly not the only reason. Um, you know, good movie making, good stories, all that. But but I, I really wonder. Um, can't prove it, but to me that feels uh, right. Yeah, if the yearning will go somewhere, right? It'll- right. Right. Because you know, I mean, I think humans need this, and that goes back to you know. Can humans just subsist on that kind of technological, um, you know, scientific, rationalist, uh, proceduralist uh, kind of conception? Doesn't need to be something, uh, something underneath all that. I think that's what one of the things we're working out. Yeah, it's a relationship with the how to the why. Hi, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I'm going to have you back. Sure, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. So for me too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. 
And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Heim for coming on the podcast, and thanks to you for listening. Until next time, my friends, fare thee well. <laughs>